And so, uh, so it actually had to mean something back then. So what we've been trying to do is take that perspective. I don't know what you would call that perspective, um, a Christological perspective, a, a revelation of Jesus perspective. We'll just call it that. I don't think it's anything uh, new. It's actually been around for um, 2,000 years, if you look at the, people, the way people have interpreted the Bible. But here we go. So Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 and again, as we're coming to it, I believe that Jesus is writing to churches who are in the middle of the greatest paradigm shift in history. Imagine for 1,500 years, they've been under the law. They've been doing sacrifices. They've been following the law. They got the Pharisees, the Sadducees every week telling them how bad they are. Well, I'm glad there aren't any churches like that today. How are we doing? So they were under the old covenant law. They were constantly reminded perfect. they were not good enough. And so they had to do things to get on God's good side. And if they didn't do them perfectly, then they were cursed. That's pretty much the Old Testament, right? And so, uh, so all of a sudden in uh, AD 30, Jesus comes along. And AD 30, AD 33, depending on how you read it. Um, Jesus comes along and he institutes a completely different way of relating to God. It's no longer external rules. It's no longer things that you have to do to please God. It's now that Jesus has pleased God and we are in him. So everything that Jesus, everything that we deserve, Jesus got. And everything that Jesus deserved, we now get through faith, through the person of Jesus. That is good news. Okay, this is good news. And so you can see the early church, they're really struggling with this. They're like, hold on, we don't have to keep the laws. What about circumcision? What about the dietary laws? You know, all these, all these type of things. And so you can even see in the book of Acts, after the, Jesus had died, rose from the dead, sent his Holy Spirit, the disciples begin to work this out. And in Acts chapter 10... There's a Gentile that gets saved in the house of Cornelius, and he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, and Peter is trying to convince the other apostles, hey, this is a God thing. They got the Spirit just like we did. They're wrestling through this. Which rules do we keep on them? And so they're in this paradigm shift, and if you remember, and I don't want to go into all this, Matthew, I think it's 24 and 25, Jesus talks about how um, there'll be a day coming when the temple will be destroyed, no st stone will be left upon another, and that he's literally talking about the judgment of Jerusalem, the, there was no, the, the temple was going to be destroyed, they couldn't do any sacrifices if they wanted to. And so Jesus said, this will happen in this generation. So he literally is giving them a 40-year window to get this thing right. And he's writing to this church in the middle of this 40-year window, trying to make this paradigm shift because in AD 70, they are judged. Jerusalem is destroyed. The, uh, yeah, anyway, all that stuff. We've gone over all that stuff. So God never called you to become Jewish. He called you to trust in his son Jesus and allow him to change you from the inside out. Are we good? <clears throat> All right, now let's talk. Uh, Jesus is writing to the church that is lukewarm. How are we doing? How many of you have heard a sermon telling you that if you are lukewarm, God is getting ready to vomit you out of his mouth? He has just about had enough of you. He'd rather have you a cold-hearted sinner or hot for God, but not lukewarm. How are we doing? But what if it doesn't mean, what if it doesn't mean what you think this means? Remember uh, Princess Bride? Inconceivable. He's like, I don't think this means, you know, I don't think this means what you think it means. You know, I kept saying that. Or, uh, well, okay, this is, you're just catching me on one of these days. Um, the other theological movie, Three Amigos. Remember he kept saying, um, would you say I am infamous? You know, I'm in, infamous, more than famous? No, 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 this is not what this means. What if lukewarm is not what you think it means? That if you are not dancing on fire, carrying a giant Bible, wearing Christian t-shirts, Christian bumper stickers, mentioning Jesus to every waitress, then you are not on fire and God is about to barf you out. What if it doesn't mean that? Let's look at what it says here. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Laodicea was one of those seven churches that he's writing to. 
The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So this is the revelation he's giving of himself. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Here's what he says to them. I know your works. You are neither hot, you are neither cold nor hot. Would you, in other words, I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. What's the reason? Okay, yeah, well, I'm not going to get into all that. <clears throat> For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I don't know about you. I don't want to have Jesus come to our church and say that. These are, if you were to read this in the Bible, these are the red letters of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. This is new covenant, resurrected, full of grace and truth Jesus coming to you and saying this. Okay, we're going to dissect these here. So what does he say? He says, yeah, I'm done with you. I've had enough of you. No, no, no. He's coming to discipline them with the words of his mouth. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. They already thought they were rich. Now he's saying you can truly be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself, <clears throat> and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. They thought they were well-dressed, but they were actually naked, and now he's giving them the solution. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline with diseases and calamity. No, that's not what he says. He just showed you how he's disciplining you. He disciplines you with his words. In John 15, uh, the book of Revelation was written by John. The book of John was written by John. Same author, he's, uh, he talks about pruning you. He talks about disciplining you with the words of his mouth. A lot of people think if you're bad, God's going to discipline you with sickness. He's going to make your car break down. He's going to make your kids hate you and all, all this crazy stuff. I remember growing up uh, under the teaching that if you didn't tithe, God was going to send the devourer to eat your crops. If you didn't tithe, then God was going to get his money somehow. He was going to make your car break down. He's going to take it out of medical bills. Did anyone else grow up hearing any of this stuff? All right, I'm not the only one here. Um, old Covenant, I like to say this, uh, you know, his name is God the Father, not the Godfather. He's not going to send Guido to break your kneecaps if you don't give enough. So he's disciplining them with his words. How many of you guys know his word is like a two-edged sword? It can cut and heal all in one motion. Those whom I love, that was how I've nauseated me. Those who I'm just a... No, no, no. He said, those whom I love. That's why he's saying... He, he's giving you a stark contrast picture of true reality because he loves you. You think you don't need him? Well, you're actually naked. But he's got a solution. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. What was the solution in all these other churches for their condition? It was to repent. Repent means to change the way you're thinking. Get a new paradigm. Get out of this old covenant mindset of thinking you have to do things to please God and get into this new covenant mindset. Jesus has done everything. We trust him. Now listen, when we trust him, it's going to change our behavior. We don't change our behavior to be pleasing to God. But once we recognize we're pleased with God, you'll live more holy on accident than you ever could on purpose. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. A lot of people use this as a passage for um, altar calls for getting people saved. But it's not Jesus knocking on the door of the sinner. He's knocking on the door of his church. <clears throat> Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. I, can't, I, I shouldn't do this, but I'm just giving you a little preview. The very next chapter starts the throne room. He says, Behold, a door is open. He's knocking on a door. 
And if you repent, you get to go through the door. And what's he say? You can come and sit with me on my throne. Let's look at the very next verse. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Knocking on the door, you can sit on my throne. Very next chapter, we go into the throne room. There's an open door, and there's his throne that he just invited you to sit on. Oh, my goodness. Chapter 4 is, I'm making up a new word, bazonkers. Oh, my word. Do you see this? To the one who conquers, what do we have to conquer? We have to conquer this lukewarmness, which we're going to define here in just a second. I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne. Not grovel, not clean up the barf off the ground, and you were actually the barf. I just made that one up. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I, also, as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word Laodicea literally means self-righteousness. <clears throat> and remember, again, as, as before Jesus asked them to do anything, he reveals an aspect of himself. And when we get a revelation of that, it enables us to walk in the very things he's asked us to do. So what do we need to know about Jesus to overcome lukewarmness? You guys ready for this? Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy 27. You guys were probably already there this morning. Deuteronomy 27, God has given his law to the children of Israel. We're going to read a bunch of verses here, but I want you to get this point, all right? I want you to notice something with me. He's given them the law. Uh, Deuteronomy 27, that day Moses charged the people saying, when you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, six tribes of Israel. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, and the Levites shall declare to all the men in a loud voice. Okay, you guys ready for this? Here's the part. Verse 15. Do not let this bless you, okay? Do not let these verses bless you. Are you ready for this? Verse 15. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. So he's pronouncing a curse over them, and they say, Amen. Verse 16, cursed be anyone who dishonors his father and mother, and all the people shall say, amen. <clears throat> Can you see this? He's pronouncing curses over them. They're like, amen. Verse 17, cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, amen. You're not shouting amen. I'm not, I'm not stopping so you can say amen for this one, okay? Cursed be uh, one who leads a blind, misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, and the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. You're getting a pattern here. Verse 20, cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because of his, has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal. That should be cursed. And all the people shall say, amen. I might say amen to that one. Verse 22, cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter, the father, the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. Cursed be the people say, amen. Cursed be the one who strikes down his neighbor in his secret. And the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And all the people shall say, amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. And all the people say, amen. Every time God's people got, uh, received a curse, they said amen to it. I don't know what it is about people, but they are so much more likely to believe that they are cursed than to believe that they are blessed. Yeah. I remember I was at this conference, and uh, I preached a message on the, uh, the good news, the covenant, the new covenant. Jesus is everything. You're righteous. You've entered into a realm of righteousness. It was good news. It got some positive response. This lady gets up, and she is preaching bad news. She is putting heavy yoke. It's literally, op it literally the opposite message of me. I'm like, 
is she literally saying the opposite of me? Like, I can't, I'm on the front row. I'm like, I can't believe, believe she's doing this. She's like, suck it up, buttercup. Jesus rose from the dead, and you can't even get out of bed. I'm like, oh, my. I mean, just laying it on him for about 45 minutes of anger. And you know what people were doing? Amen. Shouting it down. That's good preaching when you're stepping on my toes. No, that's the old covenant, putting a curse on you. And for some reason, human nature will say amen to the curse. But you know what's interesting? The very, okay, that was Deuteronomy 27. Guess what's after Deuteronomy 27? Deuteronomy 28. Guess the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy. Blessing. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Every area of life. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. God will command a blessing on your barns and in all you undertake. Blessed will you be in the land. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity. Blessed all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You'll be the head and not the tail. You shall go up. You shall only go up and not go down. Will somebody give an amen to this? Amen. No one did. They just amened tons of curses in chapter 27, but no one would amen the, uh, the blessings of chapter 28 until... You guys ready for this? The Old Covenant always ends with curses. Malachi, also known as the Italian prophet Malachi, chapter 4, verse 6. The last verse of the last book of the Old Covenant. Here's what it says. And he will turn the hearts of his fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Oh, that's wonderful. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. <clears throat> oh, okay. I guess because we missed that part there. So the last word of the Old Covenant is a curse. Let's look at the last word of the last book of the new covenant. Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is powerful. The old covenant ends with a curse and people amen the curse. The new covenant ends with the grace of your Lord Jesus. And finally, somebody says, Amen. Jesus says to these churches in Laodicea, I am the final amen to the curse. Because every curse you had coming, I took it upon myself so that I could release a blessing to you. You've been redeemed from all the curses of the law. Sickness, torment, poverty, emotional distress, hemorrhoids. That was actually one of the curses of the law in Deuteronomy 28. Hemorrhoids. <laughs> like, Jim, will you lay hands on that? We'll just send the word to that one to be healed. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, it's interesting, in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, people were going crazy about generational curses. I'm so glad we don't have that today. Well, I tell you what, I, I'll tell people that they're not cursed, and you would think I said your mama is ugly. Like, people will fight for their right to be cursed. They get so angry at this. Apparently, this was going on in uh, Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah 29, verses 29 and 30. In those days, they shall no longer say, he's talking about in the new covenant, they're not going to have this saying anymore. So here's the saying. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. In other words, they're expecting the fathers to do something, and the kids would suffer the consequences. Dads ate sour grapes, the kids had the bad taste in their mouth. The dads sinned, and the kids paid the consequences of it to the third and fourth generation. That was the old covenant. 
Third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God never punished the innocent. He punished those who partook of the sin. What was the counter to that? But I will bless those of a thousand generations of those who, who love me, right? So are you ready for this? <clears throat> Remember, here's a powerful thought. Jesus on the cross, what did he say? He said, I thirst. Listen to John 19, 28 and 30. I'm going somewhere with this. I know you, I made you put your traveling shoes on, but are you following me here a little bit? Jesus is revealing himself as the great amen. He's the amen to all the curses being done, and he's the amen to all the blessings. That's where I'm going. I just told you. Here we go. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. What's sour wine made from? Sour grapes. And they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, gave up his spirit. Come on, somebody. On the cross, when Jesus took a drink of sour grapes, he was taking every bit of the curse that belonged for the generational curses, for all that garbage that belonged to us and redeemed us from the curse, the curse of Adam, the curse of the law, every generational curse. There are now no curses under the new covenant because Jesus revealed himself as the amen to all those curses. He drank the sour wine of the grapes that would set the children's teeth on edge and said amen to the blessing. Oh, man, I feel like I just burned some calories there. <laughs> I just drank quite it on the wrong pipe. <clears throat> drink, then breathe. Got it. <clears throat> there are no generational curses under the new covenant. Jesus drank the sour wine for you. And now he says this, I will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. Guys, if Jesus isn't holding your sin against you, he's not going to hold the fact that your grandfather was a witch doctor against you or an alcoholic or a sexual abuser or fill in the blank. It's been cut. That person that you were died in Christ, and now there is a new person you're married to, a new husband, Jesus. Whew. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all of God's promises are yes and amen. Man, we need to amen that. All right, you guys ready to move on? No. All right. Revelation 3, verse 15. I know your works. You are neither hot, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, the word spit comes from the Hebrew word hak. I just made that up. That's not true. <laughs> Junior high was my best years. I'm sorry. <laughs> Here's a favorite question of some preachers. Are you a lukewarm believer with a furrowed brow, usually sweaty, red-faced, right? And the implication was, you better have a good answer, because if you are lukewarm, Jesus is going to spit you out of his mouth because you make him nauseous. You make him sick to his stomach. You may think you're saved, but if you're not on fire for God, you'll end up in the fire. If you're not on fire, you're going to wind up in the fire without God, you lukewarm loser. That's not an actual quote. Okay, it's a, it's a paraphrase. Here's some good news. This verse is not talking about that. First, you're a part of God's body, and Jesus doesn't spew out body parts. No one in here has ever vomited up their toe. 
okay? Being lukewarm has nothing to do with how enthusiastic or passionate you are for the Lord. Okay, what did he say? I know your deeds. He's judging the way that they're doing their works. That's the whole judgment of this thing. I, I, he says, I know your deeds. Some people think being on fire for God is going to a lot of church meetings and worship services and volunteering a lot and doing good things. Listen, those can be good things, but your activity level <clears throat> does, not, does not impress the Lord. <clears throat> He's not, ooh, <clears throat> this person's involved in three things in the city, and they're, ooh, they're not giving 10%. They're giving 11%. Hot. <laughs> this person over here, whatever, you know, right? Some people try to figure out if they're hot for God by comparing their zeal to someone else. Wow, that person fasted for 40 days, and of course they let everybody know about it. <clears throat> wow, they're really, they're really expressive in worship. They must be on fire. Wow, they talk about Jesus all the time. They must be on fire. Guys, I'm not saying these are bad things. I'm not saying Jesus isn't impressed by your works. I haven't led as many people to the Lord as that person, so I'm a lukewarm loser. I don't know where that phrase, it just, it just rings, it just rolls off the tongue, it's terrible. <clears throat> I guess since I can't be hot for God, Jesus would rather have me be stone cold. And that's the trap that people have. It's like they, they got to put on this performance for God to show them how hungry they are. And they talk about hunger all the time. And you, guys, guess what? In those hunger messages, you ain't never hungry enough. Yeah. Have you noticed that? You never walk out of those hunger messages, you're like, oh, I'm so thankful for Jesus. I, I, you, what you should walk out is, wow, I can't believe the buffet table he set before me. I want to feast more in the lamb. I want to know more about Jesus. It may make you more hungry for Jesus, but it's not going to make you feel bad for not being more hungry for Jesus. Guilt and shame are not great motivators, even for seven-year-olds. How are we doing? It's foolish to think that any of those things that you do makes you hot or cold, makes you acceptable or not acceptable pleasing or nauseating. Your behavior is not what makes you acceptable or acceptable. Isaiah said that our righteousness is like filthy menstrual rags. Got a little picture of that. No, I don't. That's disgusting. <laughs> Paul said in Philippians 3 that he counted his human righteousness as dung. Okay, let's look at the, the word pictures here. Vomit, menstrual rags, dung. God's trying to get the, uh, the message about religion. <clears throat> God is saying the message that says, look what I've done. Look what I'm doing. Look how hungry I am. Look at all the things I'm doing. Oh, God's not pleased with me. Maybe if I do this, he'll answer my prayer request. My prayers aren't getting answered. I must need to do something else. God's saying, vomit, dung, menstrual rags. This is disgusting. This, is, this doesn't work. Okay? What's disgusting that he wants to vomit out? Those hot, those lukewarm works, okay? So what is lukewarm? What does it mean to be lukewarm? Lukewarm is what you get when you mix hot with cold. It's what you get when you mix law and grace. The stone-cold tablets of the law are the fiery, blazing, hot furnaces of the love of God. You mix those two together, you get a little bit of, it sounds just so good enough, and then they add a little thing in at the end of, you need to do this, or you're not, gonna, you're not pleasing to God. God's not going to use you. God's not going to use you based on your performance. He's going to use it based on Jesus' performance. And when you recognize that, your performance is going to be a whole lot better than it was over there. Lukewarm is when you mix hot with cold. When you mix, when you mix let's, use some more, let's mix up some more metaphors here. In Romans 7, it's mixing up husbands by running back to the law, and you're now cheating on Jesus, your new husband. That's lukewarm. 
Uh, ironically, I believe the leading cause of apathy in the church, usually what people say lukewarm is, is you're apathetic and you like it that way. You don't want to be hot. It costs you too much. You know, you have just enough of God to not be cold. You're lukewarm, you lukewarm loser. Okay? That's usually how they define lukewarmness. And here's the problem, is you mixing law and grace is actually what causes people to be apathetic. By mixing unmixable things, we paralyze and neutralize the power of the gospel of grace. This is a ridiculous illustration that just came to me. Senior year in high school. We had to do these oral reports, and I had a friend, uh, uh, Caleb, and so he, um, <clears throat> he blew us all away. We didn't know what he was going to do, and he comes up with these little test tubes um, full of urine, and he announces to the class that he has developed a way to test, to taste test urine and tell what vitamin deficiencies were there. We're like, oh my gosh, he's not, before, before Mr. Zach could stop him, he takes one of the vials and drinks it down and goes, asparagus. No kidding, that's what he says. Okay. No one, some of you are like, Jim, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> Dung, vomit, menstrual rags, it's in the Bible. How are we doing? Listen, guys, a little bit of urine in the water makes it undrinkable. If you know there's urine in the water, you, okay, it turned out he had lemonade and some Mountain Dew and he mixed it in there. He didn't actually drink urine. He just played a big joke on all of us. Okay. So rest of the story. I want you guys to get this point, guys. A little bit of urine in the water makes it no bueno. You're not drinking it. A little bit of law mixed with grace, no matter how pure that water is. This is water from a melted glacier with a couple drops of urine in it. You ain't drinking it. It does not mix. When you, when you stick in a little bit of human effort to please God with a whole bunch of Jesus' effort to please God, it neutralizes the whole thing and makes it undrinkable. And so people try to mix the new covenant of grace with the old covenant of works. The rest of the new covenant with the ceaseless demands of the law. The ministry that condemns with the ministry of condemnation, with the ministry of no condemnation. The message of freedom with the message of bondage. The message of sin consciousness. The more close you get to God, the more aware you are of your sin. Baloney. That's, that's sin consciousness. That's the old covenant. The closer you are to God, the more you become aware of his son, and you're so grateful for what he's done. You just want to feast on that all day long. Trying to impress God with your sacrifices versus being completely satisfied with Jesus' sacrifices. Lukewarm. Trying to become holy versus living out of your true identity in Christ and being who you already are. Be holy as I am holy. He didn't say try to be holy. Work at it. How are we doing? People who call it balance. You need to preach a balance. No, no. You need to preach a hyper grace message because all grace is hyper. I'm not talking about the message that says you can live however you want. That's, uh, it's the grace of God that teaches you to say no to ungodliness. So when you think you've got to balance it with a little bit of fire insurance over here, it's no longer grace, which means they're no longer getting set free from that sin. It's the grace of God that teaches you to say no to sin. How are they going to live holy? They're going to hear the message about what Jesus has done, believe it, and what does it say in Romans 5.17? It says that through the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, we reign in life. That sounds a lot like sitting on a throne next to God. 
People call it balance, but it's just mixed up preachers giving mixed up messages that lead to mixed up believers. And it's like getting poison from a doctor. How we doing? Why does Jesus prefer us to be cold rather than lukewarm? If you live with a mixture of cold and hot, old and new, you won't reap the benefits of either one. So he said, I'd rather have you cold. Why? Because the law, the cold law, will lead you to Jesus. Guys, the law had a purpose. It wasn't to try to keep it. The purpose of the law was to show you you can't keep the law. Guys, here's the message of the old covenant. God is perfect, and he expects you to be perfect. And if you're not perfect, you will be cursed. And so there were sacrifices that temporarily stayed off that judgment. That's why Israel, whenever they went into idolatry and stopped making sacrifices, boom, the judgment of God came and wiped them out. And then they'd repent, and then they'd have God's favor again. Right? That was the old covenant, guys. That was the whole purpose of the law. I mean, there was, what, 613 laws of little... It was bad news. And he said, I'd rather have you have that, because the purpose of that will lead you back to Jesus. A lukewarm version of the law says you need to try harder. You need to make more sacrifices in your life to please God. You need to make some more promises and some rededications. The lukewarm version of the law won't lead you to Jesus. It'll just lead you to more self-effort. He'd rather have you the cold stone hard facts of the law. You're not perfect. You need to be perfect. You need a savior. The lukewarm law says, look what I'm doing for you, Lord. The new covenant says, look at what Jesus has done for me, Lord. The remedy for lukewarm Christianity is to see the stone-cold assessment that Jesus gives at the Laodiceans, verse 17. <clears throat> for you say, I'm rich. I prospered. I don't need anything. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church, that remember, the, the, these people, they, they, they had the covenants. They were the Jews. They didn't need anything. They were the ones who had, had the relationship with God. He's like, you think you have it, but you actually have nothing. The church that thought they were rich and prosperous and in need of nothing, Jesus says, here's your true spiritual condition. You're, you're poor, blind, and naked in your own self-efforts. He's going to give them a solution here, but I want you guys to see. I hope you're seeing it. Revelation 3, 18. Jesus loves the church so much, he gives them a solution so they can become hot. <clears throat> Ready for this? I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire. What's the solution for their poverty? To buy gold refined by fire. It's a picture of God's kingdom, his glory, so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. There's the, there's the condition, there's the solution for their nakedness and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see <clears throat> the solution to your blindness. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. These are just beautiful words. So can you see Jesus is saying, listen, you need to heat up your love for me a little more. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's not the message. He's saying, look, I see your works, and they're neither hot nor cold. You're mixing it up. So here's what I need you to do. You think you've got it all? Here's the, here's the mirror. Here's the real condition. I love you. Repent. Because if you do, i got some awesome stuff for you. <clears throat> Interesting. The solution was to Repent. Poverty uh, for gold refined by fire. Gold was covering everything in that third dimension of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the curtains, everything was overlaid with gold. <clears throat> blindness, it's interesting. Remember, uh, do you remember there was a story of a man who was blind, struck with blindness in the New Testament? His name was Saul of Tarsus. Remember, after he has an encounter with the Lord, he becomes, he becomes uh, Paul. 
Interesting. So he struck blind. Here's this man who is zealous for the law. He describes himself as perfect before the law. And yet here's this prophetic picture of him being blind. And isn't it interesting? Who is it that comes to him and uh, sets him free from his blindness? It was a, a disciple named Ananias. Do you know what the word Ananias means? Grace. So here's this verse prophetically illustrated in the life of Paul. The man who's zealous and perfect in the law, and yet he's blind. But he, when he has an encounter with grace, he's now able to see. How are we doing? <clears throat> he says, if you're poor, you need to buy uh, gold refined in fire. <clears throat> Do you remember in the book of Luke? I think it's, for, it's, I think it's chapter 16. I don't have it in my notes. I just wrote this one in here a second ago. <clears throat> Jesus is telling a series of parables. And one of the parables he tells is about this rich man <clears throat> who had gone into Gehenna. Let's just call it hell. He had gone into hell. And there was this poor beggar named Lazarus who had gone into Abraham's bosom. It's a parable, maybe kind of picturing heaven. You guys getting the picture? <clears throat> and this poor guy, this rich man, is in torment in hell. He thinks he's got, I mean, from the world standards, he thought he had everything. He was a son of Abraham. He was a Jew. He had riches. He thought he had everything. Here he is rotting in hell, burning in hell. And uh, he looks up and he sees this rich man there. And this is, this, I'm sorry, he sees the poor guy. And this poor guy had been a beggar and it said he had his wounds licked by dogs. Okay, dogs are always a picture of the Gentiles. This guy's outside the covenant, and here he is enjoying heaven. And he begs Abraham, he says, listen, just dip your finger in cool water and touch it to my tongue that I can have some relief. And he says, please, raise that guy from the dead, that poor beggar. Raise him from the dead and have him go tell people what it's about. And Jesus said, listen, if they're not going to listen to law and prophets, they're not going to listen to a guy who's been raised from the dead. Isn't that interesting? <clears throat> He's telling this story. <clears throat> about a bunch of people who were Abraham's sons who thought they had it all, who were rotting in hell. And they said, if you'll just raise someone from the dead named Lazarus, then we'll believe. Fast forward a couple weeks. You can just picture, about picture the story. Jesus, he goes to the house of Mary and Martha, and he raises from the dead their brother. You can almost hear the news getting back to the Pharisees. They're like, uh, you're not going to believe this. Um, remember that parable he was telling about the poor guy, the beggar? Raised from the dead. Well, Jesus just raised from the dead. Tell me, tell me his name is not Lazarus. It's Lazarus. And they still didn't believe him. Can you see the heart of God? He's, he's, he's literally picturing this scenario. He's like, I'm going to give you every chance in the world. You're these people. When you think that you have it all because of your heritage, your denomination, your wealth of this world. Guys, Jesus isn't impressed with how successful you are in business or how unsuccessful you are. How much you do or how much you don't do, he's impressed with his son. And if you think he's impressed with everything else, he says you're blind, you're naked, and you're poor. Now here's some good news. He gives you the solution. Are we okay? Does that just blow you away? About If you'll raise Lazarus from the dead, they'll believe. He raises Lazarus from the dead. A couple chapters later, they kill him. Actually, it says, right when they, yeah, after that, they made even more plans to kill him. All right, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That picture of eating there or dining with him is the picture of the evening meal. It's relaxed. It's extended. It's intimate. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Mention of the door, mention of the throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. 
Okay, door thrown. Let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is the very next verses. After this, after what? After what? After he's just written these letters to the seven churches and told six out of seven of them to, re to repent. Uh, after you repent, this, after you change your mindset, change your paradigm, get out of this old covenant mindset of I have to do things, get into this new covenant mindset, everything we've been talking about for weeks. After this, I looked and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. He'd just been knocking on a door. If you'll overcome, if you'll repent, this door gets opened in heaven. And the, vo the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you mu what must take place after this. And once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. He was just stepping into another realm. But I don't know how much I want to tell on this. <clears throat> there was a tabernacle... Can you just give me a minute here? There was a tabernacle of Moses that had three dimensions. It had an outer court, had an inner court called the holy place, and it had uh, um, the inner chambers called the most holy place, the holy of holies. <clears throat> the outer court had the sacrifices of blood and had the washing. It represented uh, salvation, blood-bought salvation, being water baptized. It moves you into the realm of the spirit where there was seven golden candlesticks. There was oil that flowed uh, into the candlesticks and out through the branches. It represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit. When we looked at the fruit of the spirit, gifts of the spirit, the table is showbread. <clears throat> there was, uh, you know, the revelation of the word. And so Jesus has been in this realm of the candlestick realm. And I feel like some guys, I feel like the church has been stuck in this since Pentecost. We're stuck in the candlestick realm. And he's saying, if you can overcome this, we've been trying to overcome this for 2,000 years, these old covenant mindsets. If you can overcome, there is a throne room realm. I believe the throne room, you're going to see here, uh, when we start looking at it, it's a, it's a picture of the tabernacle of Moses of the Holy of Holies. When we repent, Jesus will open the door that he's been knocking on, and we can come in and we can have intimate fellowship with him and a level of ruling and reigning to bring heaven to earth that we've never seen before. What's it take? Guys, we're going to have to do a 40-day fast. We're going to have to do this and that. We're going to have to do crusades every night. I'm not against any of that stuff, but that's not what we need. What we need to do is repent. We need to just change our mindsets. We need to recognize Jesus did it all. And when I trust that and I feed on that, it changes my body, soul, and spirit. It changes my authority level. Sitting on his throne with him is not just sitting in a Victorian chair in heaven. He's inviting us into another dimension of intimacy and rulership, moving from the candlestick realm into the throne room realm. Many of you have felt a draw into something more. Repent. Change your mindset. Feast on Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal him more clearly. Stop mixing hot with cold. Push your chips to the center of the table and bet it all that Jesus is enough. The planet does not belong to the devil. He does not ultimately win. If you feed on bad news, I can understand why you're depressed. It's time for God's people to answer the knock at the door of your heart to Jesus and go into the third dimension, the most holy place. Here's how I like to end this, guys. Well, I can't wait to talk about the throne room. But right now, we need to decide whether or not we're going to... Is that even something that you want? Okay? If you don't, I'm not trying to condemn anybody, but let's just... Uh, 
Maybe make that your prayer. Jesus, show me you more clearly. Any sane person that sees the deal that's offered um, would sell everything and follow him. That's the condition for entering the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is like a person who finds a treasure in a field. And when he finds it, he sells everything he have so he can buy the field. Why? Because the treasure in the field was greater than anything else he could ever have. The heart of a disciple is someone recognizing it's the opportunity of a lifetime to not only be blood-bought and washed, water-baptized and saved, to not only to have the gifts of the Spirit, the flow of the Spirit, revelation, that candlestick realm. We love that. We love that. Our city needs more than that. We need more than that to not be bored. There's a knock at the door and an invitation to sit on his throne room and to dine with him and intimacy with him. I'm just saying, guys, as a church, we've got to go there. As a person, I've got to go there. And so we'll talk more about this. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just take a moment and just say, Holy Spirit, show me any area where I'm mixing cold with hot, law with grace, where I have to feel like I have to do something, where I've been struggling in my own effort, thinking that you wouldn't help me. So just take a moment, ask the Holy Spirit, and then just talk to him about it. So just take a few moments. Lord, I just thank you that you're knocking at the door of each one of our hearts. Lord, I just thank you that you're not looking to spit us out of your mouth, Lord, but that mixture of works you want to spit out. And so, Lord, we just ask you to continually search us, remind us of your good news. We pray that prayer of uh, Ephesians chapter 1 for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to unveil Jesus to us. God, help us to see Jesus more clearly so that the decision becomes so easy. Lord, help us not to settle for a mixture. But Lord, I pray that we will be a throne room church. That, Lord, we will uh, be a church that sits, uh, that dines with you and sits on your throne and literally shapes the course of world history in our city and beyond, in our families, in our children. Lord, I just declare that Zion will be a throne room church. Will somebody amen that one? You know, before we transition on, I just want to take a moment. Is there anyone in here? Uh, maybe, and if you're online, you can respond online, and we've got ways that we can connect with you there. But you're here, and you're realizing, I don't know Jesus. You know, maybe you've... Uh